Chapter 5, Part 1 of American Men of Action by Burton Egbert Stevenson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by William Tomko. Statesman, Part 1. If one were asked to name the most remarkable all-around genius this country has produced, the answer would be Benjamin Franklin, whose life was perhaps the fullest, happiest, and most useful ever lived in America. There are half a dozen chapters of this series in which he might rightfully find a place, and in which, indeed, it will be necessary to refer to him, for he was an inventor, a scientist, a man of letters, a philanthropist, a man of affairs, a reformer, and a great many other things besides. But first and greatest of all, he was a benign, humorous, kind-hearted philosopher, who devoted the greater portion of his life to the service of his country and of humanity. Benjamin Franklin was born at Boston in 1706, the fifteenth of a family of seventeen children. His father was a soap boiler, and was kept pretty busy providing for his family, none of whom, with the exception of Benjamin, ever attained any especial distinction, this being one of those mysteries of nature which no one has ever been able to explain, and yet which happens so often. The production of an eagle in a brood of common barnyard fowls a miracle, however, which never happens except when the barnyard fowls are of the human species. Benjamin himself, at first, was only an ugly duckling in no way remarkable. At the age of ten, he was apprenticed to his brother, who was a printer, and needed a boy to do the dirty work around the office, and thought there was no need of paying good money to an outsider when it might just as well be kept in the family. So Benjamin went to work sweeping out and washing up the dirty presses, and making himself generally useful during the day. But, and here is the first gleam of the eagle's feather, instead of going to bed with the sun as most boys did, he sat up most of the night reading such books and papers as he was able to get hold of at the office, or himself writing short articles for the paper which his brother published. These he slipped unsigned under the front door of the office, so that his brother would not suspect they came from him for no man is a prophet to his own family, and these contributions would have promptly gone into the wastebasket had his brother suspected their source. As it was, however, they were printed, and not until Benjamin revealed their authorship did his brother discover how bad they were. After he had served in the printing office for seven years, Benjamin came to the conclusion that his family would never appreciate him at his real worth. He was like most boys in this, differing from them only in being right, so he sold some of his books and without saying anything to his father or brother who would probably have reasoned him out of his purpose with a cowhide whip he hid himself on board a boat bound for new york arrived there he soon discovered that printers and budding geniuses were in no great demand and so proceeded on to philadelphia partly on foot and partly by water Everyone knows the story of how he landed there, with only a few pennies in his pocket, but with a sublime confidence in his ability to make more. How he proceeded to the nearest bake shop, asked for three pennies worth of bread, and when he was given three loaves, took them rather than reveal his ignorance by confessing that he really wanted only one loaf, and walked up Market Street with a loaf under each arm and eating the third. He has told the story in his inimitable way in his autobiography, a work which gives him high place among American men of letters. Small wonder that red-cheeked Deborah Reed smiled at him from the door of her father's house, 
but franklin saw the smile and remembered it and though it brought them both distress enough at first he asked deborah to be his wife six years later and she consented and a good wife she made him years afterward when he was ambassador to france and the pet of the french court the center of perhaps the most brilliant and witty circle in europe the talk one day chanced to turn upon tailors of whom the company expressed the utmost detestation franklin listened with a quiet smile which someone at last observed don't you agree he was asked that tailors are a conscienceless and extortionate class no he answered still smiling how could i you see i'm in love with mine and he told proudly and with shining eyes how the clothes he wore had been spun into thread and woven into cloth and cut out and fitted and sewed together by his wife's own hands and it was no doubt deborah he had in mind when he said god bless all good women who help men to do their work the young adventurer had no difficulty in finding employment as a printer for printers were in demand in that quaker city he prospered from the first and at the age of twenty-four had a little business of his own and was editing the pennsylvania gazette two years later he began the publication of an almanac purporting to be written by one richard saunders and which soon won an immense reputation as poor richard's almanac as an almanac it did not differ much from others but in addition to the usual information about the tides and changes of the moon and seasons of the year it contained a wealth of wise and witty sayings many of which have passed into proverbs and are in common use today. Here are a few of them. Virtue and a trade are a child's best portions. Right injuries in dust, benefits in marble. The way to be safe is never to be secure. When you are good to others, you are best to yourself. Well done is better than well said. God helps them that help themselves wish not so much to live long as to live well he that won't be counseled can't be helped that he was a philosopher indeed as well as in word was soon to be proved for at the age of forty-two he did the wisest thing a man can do but for which very few have courage he had won an established position in the world and as much wealth as he felt he needed so he sold his business intending to devote the remainder of his life to science of which he had always been passionately fond already he had founded the philadelphia library and the american philosophical society had invented the franklin stove and served as postmaster of philadelphia and a few years later he established the institution which is now the university of pennsylvania it was at about this time that by experimenting with a kite he proved lightning to be a discharge of electricity and suggested the use of lightning rods but his scientific studies were destined to be interrupted for his country called him and the remainder of his life was passed in her service first as agent in london for pennsylvania where he did everything possible to avert the revolution then as a member of the continental congress and one of the committee of five which drew up the declaration of independence then as ambassador to france where practically unaided he succeeded in effecting the alliance between the two countries which secured the independence of the colonies and finally as president of pennsylvania and a member of the constitutional convention his last public act was to petition congress to abolish slavery in the united states if one were asked to name the three men who did most to secure the independence of their country they would be george washington who fought her battles 
Robert Morris, who financed them, and Benjamin Franklin, who secured the aid of France. When Thomas Jefferson, who had been selected as minister to France, appeared at the court of Louis the Sixteenth, he presented his papers to the Comte de Vergen. "'You replace Mr. Franklin?' inquired the nobleman, glancing at the papers. "'No, monsieur,' Jefferson replied. "'I succeed him. No one could replace him.' And that answer had more truth than wit. Honors came to Franklin, such as no other American has ever received, but he remained from first to last the same quiet, deep-hearted, and unselfish man, whose chief motive was the promotion of human welfare. He had his faults and made his mistakes, but time has sloughed them all away, and there are few sources of inspiration which can compare with the study of his life. No family has loomed larger in American affairs than the Adams family of Massachusetts. John Adams, president himself, and living to see his own son president, an experience which probably no other man will ever enjoy, had a second cousin who played a much more important part than he did in securing the independence of the United States. His name was Samuel Adams, and when he graduated from Harvard in 1740, at the age of 18, his thesis discussed the question, whether it be lawful to resist the supreme magistrate of the commonwealth cannot otherwise be preserved and answered it in the affirmative. Samuel Adams was a silent, stern, and deeply religious man, something of a dreamer, a bad manager, and constantly in debt. But he was perhaps the first in America to conceive the idea of absolute independence from Great Britain, and he worked for this end unceasingly and to good purpose. The wealthy John Hancock was one of his converts, and it was partly to warn these two of the troops sent out to capture them that Paul Revere took that famous ride to Lexington on the night of April 18, 1775. A month later, when General Gage offered amnesty to all the rebels, Hancock and Adams were especially accepted. It was Samuel Adams who, perceiving that Virginia was apt to be lukewarm in aiding a war which was to be fought mostly in the North, suggested the appointment of Virginia's favorite son, George Washington, as commander-in-chief of the American army, and who seconded the motion to that effect made by John Adams. He lived to see his dream of independence realized, and his grave in the old granary burying ground at Boston is one of the pilgrimage places of America. With his name, that of John Hancock is, as we have seen, closely associated. The worldly circumstances of the two were very different, for Samuel Adams was always poor, while John Hancock had fallen heir to one of the greatest fortunes in New England. He was only twenty-seven at the time, and his fortune made a fool of him, as sudden wealth has a way of doing. It was at this time, being young and impressionable, he met Samuel Adams a silent and reserved man, fifteen years his senior, and regarded by his neighbors as a harmless crank. But there was something about him which touched Hancock's imagination, and touched his pocketbook, too, for about the first thing Adams did was to borrow money from him. Hancock was no doubt glad to lend the money, for he had more than he knew what to do with, and spent it in such a lavish manner that he was soon one of the most popular men in Boston. So, when one of his ships was seized for smuggling in a cargo of wine, all his friends and employees got together and paraded the streets, and a lot of boys and loafers joined them, for drink was flowing freely, and pretty soon there was a riot, and the troops were called out and fired a volley and killed five men, and the rest of the mob decided that it was time to go home, and went. 
and that was the boston massacre about which you have heard so much that it would almost seem to rank with that of st bartholomew but as the irishman remarked the man who gets his finger pinched makes a lot more racket than the one who gets his head cut off and the boston massacre for all of the hullabaloo that was raised about it was merely an insignificant street riot no doubt samuel adams did his full share in fanning that little spark into a conflagration for adams had acquired great influence over hancock and that vapid young man was fond of being seen in the company of the older one adams was anxious to secure hancock for the revolutionary cause and soon had him so hopelessly entangled that there was no escape for him on the anniversary of the boston massacre he persuaded hancock to deliver a revolutionary speech which he had himself prepared and after that there was a british order out for hancock's arrest adams contrived that hancock should be one of the three delegates from massachusetts to the continental congress john and samuel adams were the other two and hancock was deeply impressed by the honor at the second congress adams saw to it that his friend was chosen president in consequence hancock was the first signer of the declaration of independence the incident which is the best known in his career he signed the document in great sprawly letters remarking grandiloquently as he did so i guess king george can read that without spectacles and for many years john hancock was the synonym for a bold signature he was afterwards governor of massachusetts for more than a decade and on one occasion attempted to snub washington with very poor success his body lies in the old granary burying ground only a step from that of samuel adams one day while thomas jefferson was a student at william and mary college at williamsburg a young friend named patrick henry dropped in to see him and announced that he had come to williamsburg to be admitted to the bar how long have you studied law jefferson inquired oh for over six weeks henry answered the story goes that jefferson advised his friend to go home and study for at least a fortnight longer but henry declared that the only way to learn law was to practice it and went ahead and took the examination such as it was and passed that was in seventeen sixty and patrick henry was twenty-four years old at the time he had been a wild boy cared little for books and had failed as a farmer and as a merchant before turning to law as a last resort nor as a lawyer was he a great success the truth being that he lacked the industry and diligence which are essential to success in any profession but he had one supreme gift that of lofty and impassioned oratory in seventeen sixty five as a member of the virginia house of burgesses he made the rafters ring and his auditors turn pale by his famous speech against the stamp act as a delegate to the continental congress in seventeen seventy four he made the only real speech of the congress arousing the delegates from an attitude of mutual suspicion to one of patriotic ardor for a common cause government said he is dissolved where are your landmarks your boundaries of colonies the distinctions between virginians pennsylvanians new yorkers and new englanders are no more i am not a virginian but an american samuel adams said afterwards that but for that speech which drew the delegates together and made them forget their differences the congress would probably have ended in a wrangle and a year later again in virginia in defense of his resolution to arm the militia he gave utterance to the most famous speech of all starting quietly with the sentence Mr. President, it is natural for man to indulge in the illusions of hope, and ending with the tremendous cry, I know not what course others may take, but as for me, 
give me liberty or give me death. That was the supreme moment of Patrick Henry's life. He did a great work after that, as member of the Continental Congress, as commander-in-chief of the Virginia forces, and as governor of the Commonwealth. But never again did he come so near the stars, as indeed a few men ever do. End of chapter 5, part 1. Recording by William Tomko.